This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Super Train, episodes two and three. You did something for me, and now it's my turn to repay you. What are you doing on that train? You made a very significant remark, remember? What remark? About a hitman. So what are you talking about? I'm beholden to you. I owe you one, Jack, and I always pay my debts. You raving lunatic, you stay away from my wife! Don't you ever call me that again. Welcome to Continuing Drag, the podcast that's chugging along on the right track. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? There's a line from, I think it's the second episode of this uh, of these two, and I didn't really love the way the line was delivered, but I'm going to deliver it the way I think it should have been delivered. Why bother? I only meet myself. That's how it should have been delivered. Remember that line? I do. That was I a, do remember that line. A wonderful line. And listener, that other voice you're hearing is our guest this week. It's Marshall from the Assoids, Assets and a- oh, Androids and Assets podcast. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you. Sorry, I jumped in way too early. There. No, no. Come in whenever you like. It's Jordan's favorite part is when the guests are just already yeah. here. <laughs> You know what also is my favorite uh, part of the podcast? When we have a guest on, and it just makes me, I love that Marshall's got a beard, but Luke and I don't have beards, but Marshall and uh, Luke both have glasses, but I don't have glasses. It's like if you blended us all together, we become one super person, probably Auto Man. <laughs> you like <laughs> you like that Marshall's the Venn diagram of us, where there's like this piece That's right. that meets in the That's middle? Right. We are three tens, so we could definitely make an Auto Man. <laughs> Oh, well, Marshall, as as you know, because you've watched them already, uh, we're watching Super Train, and I wanted to know, do you did you have any knowledge of Super Train before we made you watch this? I had zero knowledge of Super Train, uh, and I, I feel that's really the fault of the public education system. <laughs> uh, we should all be forced to watch Super Train growing up, because it's... An absolute delight. It, cer- it certainly educates you about uh, public policy, politics, <laughs> yeah. murdering one's ex-wife. Uh, the dangers of going on a train ride. <laughs> oh, there's a lot. A lot can happen on a super train. You'll probably face a murderer. <laughs> Most likely, yeah. And before, just so we can keep this intro going a little longer... Typically, when we have a guest on for the first time, we like to find out kind of what their history is with, like, science fiction TV. Like, you know, did you watch a lot of it growing up? Is it something you were forcing you to watch for the first time in your life? I know what your podcast is, so I know that it can't possibly be the first time you've thought about science fiction television. But I am curious as to what you're like. When did you start watching sci-fi television? Yeah. Oh, oh goodness. Um, I... Have I have always like I don't remember a time that I wasn't watching something science fiction. I honestly like I can't remember the first time that I saw like Star Wars because we, they were just always playing in the house or we, like we watched all of the Star Treks whenever they were on. It was like a regular. You just you were that's just what we did. You were just getting this through osmosis. Yeah, it was like it was always it was always a thing. So well, here's a question then: When's the first time you realized there was anything but science fiction on TV? <laughs> <laughs> was it Manix? Remember that show? 
No. No, don't. Doesn't matter. It's just for me. <laughs> I think maybe I just had a weird childhood, but like if it wasn't science fiction on, it was like Maury and Oprah. <laughs> the the two companion pieces. <laughs> right. Unrelated, Luke, I don't know if I ever told you this before, but a couple of years ago, I tried to get tickets to Maury Povich, and <laughs> it, it didn't end up happening, but the lady on the phone, um, the only really lasting memory of it was, uh, she was like, if you come on Friday, it's guaranteed to be a paternity uh, episode, because clearly that's all anyone wants, is they want to come and see someone go, you are not the father, and they do a dance or whatever. Anyway, I really enjoyed that, so we can cut this out of the podcast, <laughs> now it's right. but I did not get to see him. <laughs> I think Maury might have also been science fiction. Mm. <laughs> Certainly fiction. He's, he's as relevant as ever, though. He's still going. He's still <laughs> doing paternity tests. Yeah, I think people that might still be don't all... know who the baby's is still father on? is. Is it honestly still Oh, yeah. Early? Oh, well, who is on? I think, like, I mean, I don't know when this comes out, so this is going to be very dated. But I, but I believe maybe last week, Little Nas X was on to determine if uh, his boyfriend was the father of uh, someone's child. <laughs> I don't know if that's a joke or not. It's not. It's not a joke. Lil Nas X very much did, uh, did a whole Maury Povich bit, uh, bit about uh, about paternity test. It looked great. It looked very funny. That the man's a genius. Amazing. Can we have a spinoff podcast where we just talk about Maury Povich? <laughs> what's the, what's it called, Jordan? Uh oh, Mopovo. I don't know. I, let me think about it. That Mo-po-vo. wasn't good. I like it. I like it. All right, you guys, that's a lot of preamble for Super Dragon. <laughs> Shall we get into it? Yeah. Here is the IMDb summary for Episode 2 and A Cup of Kindness 2. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke plays a deranged man who plans to repay a kindness by killing the estranged wife of his benefactor. Let me just say right off the bat, if this is what the series is going to be, because Marshall, I don't know if you watched the first episode, which was a real disappointment, but... These two episodes are, at least in my opinion, much, much better. And if only for the guest stars, because this episode has Dick Van Dyke and a favorite of mine, Larry Linville, who's probably only just because I was a big MASH fan. So, um, oh, so he, he is from MASH. MASH. I was yeah, like, is MASH. this guy from MASH? Yeah. And then in the next episode, Loretta Swit, who's also from MASH, is in it as the guest star, as uh, the wife, Alice, I think she plays. And then, oh, also in the next episode, Victor Bueno who I think only only very few people would be excited about because he played King Tut in the uh, Batman 60s series. And then Billy Barty. Do you guys remember who Billy Barty is? No. Marshall? No. Billy <laughs> Billy Barty was Gwildor in the Masters of the Universe movie. Remember the little uh, little elf guy who had the little uh, key that could get him across universes? Never like, seen it. Come on, Never what? seen it. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. Anyways, that's why I was excited. The guest stars were were off the hook, as the kids say. Your hair was blown back at every introduction. <laughs> yeah. How'd they get him, you asked? Yeah, yeah. Well, how'd they get Dick Van Dyke and Larry Linville? Just, just, like, wasn't Robert Alda in the first episode? Just for another MASH connection? Because he's Alan Alda's dad? Is that who that was? I could be wrong, but I, that was my... Just to talk about an episode that we're not actually talking about. You know. You're, uh, we don't care if you're wrong. For us, it's the truth. We don't look into anything after we say it. We just assume it's right. And then later, someone corrects <laughs> us online. I can't believe they got Alan Alda's dad. <laughs> <laughs> right? They called up Alan Alda. They're like, are you available? He's like, no, but my dad's hanging around. Do you want him? They're like, sure, send him over. <laughs> All right. Well, this episode opens up on a crowd of people at the uh, Grand Central Station stepping over 
a prone body, and that body belongs to Dick Van Dyke's character, Waldo Chase. Now, it's not Dick Van Dyke, but if you just see a man at the bottom of the stairs of the subway and you're rushing to get to the train, are you stopping to help him? No. Yes. No, I'm not helping him either. <laughs> we got one yes and two no's. When I when I lived in Toronto, I actually did stop and help a man at the bottom of the, the, the subway. Uh, he fell down the escalator. It was very well, sad. Well, did he kill your ex-wife, though? <laughs> he threatened to. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. This was, was this the man you told me about that you pushed down the stairs first? <laughs> yes, the same one. I, I then went and helped him up. You forced an act of kindness upon him. And and then he was in my debt. He was yes, that's right. So people are stepping over him as we as we've mentioned. And the only good Samaritan who stops is a man named Jack Nordoff, who uh, who wants to check and see if the, this this poor Dick Van Dyke is all right. Hey, he's a he's a kind soul. He's a kind soul. And of course, this this kicks off this very uh, Hitchcockian plot where now Dick Van Dyke's taken an interest in him for uh, for helping him. This act of kindness, he owes him a favor and. They get they end up at a, at the train station restaurant where Dick Van Dyke buys him a drink and they just start discussing why he's there at the train station, which is because Jack is here to see his wife Moira off on the train as they are getting a divorce. And there's a lot of a lot of talk about divorces and wives. For instance, this quote: uh, "Wives, they'll skin you alive, then follow over you and call it love." <laughs> a lot of a lot of talk about marriage, wives, and divorce in this episode. <laughs> But I have to say, both of the characters were going to meet his wife later on. And uh, what's Larry's uh, character's name in this? Jack. Jack. Both of them, uh, you get the feeling right off the right off the bat that both of them have like some residual feelings or some. Uh, it, it's not as concrete this divorce as as it might seem at first glance. Yes, there's certainly some hard feelings. I, I mean, I think there's some great lines up here at the top where they're like talking, where Dick Van Dyke and Jack are talking in the restaurant and. And Dick Van Dyke's really pushing him for information about, like, this divorce and how he's feeling. He's, and he's like, do you hate her? And he's just like, I don't know. I could hate her. Like, he, you know, there's this, they're in between this state where there's a lot of emotional turmoil between them. And I thought it was, like, handled kind of nicely. Weirdly for this show, I was just like, how interesting to watch this sort of give and take of a relationship, like, coming apart. I was like, I was surprised. I'm like, I was not expecting nuance from Super Train after episode one. She certainly liked what the job got her, but. didn't like that i had to ignore her i had to work too hard and she didn't care for it but dick van dyke as he's asking these questions we get the sense he's a real creepo because he's really leaning in really like asking the hard questions and at some point he asks jack how would you feel if she was dead yeah and that's it's a great scene because i think uh uh they cast larry linville good here because he's he's a good guy at looking nervous and sweaty and that's sort of his role is just the whole time to be like, oh, I, I don't know. And you can see the, you know, the awkwardness of he just wants to get out of this conversation. He's done something nice for someone. This person's clinging on too long. And now he's being, yeah. you know, borderline inappropriate. So it's just like, oh, I'll pay for the drinks. Let's just end this conversation. But it's like uh, the Dick Van Dyke character. What's his name? Waldo? Waldo. Waldo Chase. Yeah. Waldo's like sort of every question he has seems like he's taking score and he's getting the answers he wants regardless of how he's sort of answer asking them so it's like it's like uh you can feel there's some sort of game being played but he's the only one playing yeah yeah it's every question's loaded and uh jack finally like steps over the line as he's as he's packing up to go meet his wife he half mentioned he half-heartedly mentioned something he says that uh a hitman would have been cheaper than the divorce lawyers he's uh he's paying for so uh this causes a little twinkle to a- enter dick van dyke's eyes and we know we know something's up the- i will say 
Dick Van Dyke this whole episode is basically playing like an American psycho or something. He's like playing a serial killer of some sort and he's crushing it. I was like, I would watch Dick Van Dyke play this character all day long. Yeah, I thought he was good. I, I thought he was a good choice for this. And also because I think everyone knows him as this, you know, lovable character from, you know, either his show or Mary Poppins or whatever it is. And he's and he's really leaning into the, like, I'm a real creep. It was it was I was impressed. I'm like I, him as a potential like psychopath was uh, surprisingly good. Also, you get to see him in his bathing suit later on. He looks great. Yeah, Great he did. He looked. Uh, you know what I actually thought? He like Dick Van. Dyke, I don't know how old he was. I'm gonna guess he's about 55 when they filmed this. I was like, he looks way better in his bathing suit than I look in my bathing suit. <laughs> you got your money's worth out of Dick Van Dyke in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Jack goes to meet Moira at the train station. They're sort of saying their goodbyes. He gives her a photo of them uh, from their marriage, a reminder of better times. That is that is that moment where they're like, will they? Won't they? Maybe they do want to stay together. And then they, Don't they you think say, that was a bit of a manipulative gift, though, to give your your ex? Hey, by super, the way, here's here's a picture of us when we were happy. I'd be like, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, she keeps asking, do you think it was a message? I'm like, yes, 100% Moira, <laughs> I think it was a message. But don't you think it's a little odd in this? Because it seems like right off the bat, he seems more disgruntled than she does. And she seems like she is, she was not as willing for the divorce. But then it's like... You would think she would be the one giving him the, the the picture, but I guess maybe that's the only way he can explain his emotions. I wasn't sure how to how to reconcile those. two. I think you might be on to something there. But it, it the he was saying though that she explicitly was the one pushing for the divorce, right? Mm-hmm. That she was unhappy in the marriage and he was fine. But she doesn't seem like it, is what I'm saying. No, not at all. It very much seems to reverse. Yeah, yeah. she. Is, I felt she could like almost take it or leave it. Like I felt like she was getting on this train and she was just going to see what was happening. But she is very casual about everything. I, but to be fair, she's also on that train getting flirted with by every man who walks by. So she seems to also be having a nice time on that train. To be fair, I think that's in the small print on your ticket at Super Train. It's like, there will be disco and men will be hitting on you. It's just like, it's part of the ticket. There's a surcharge. When Waldo and Jack were, you know, separating, uh, Jack was like, why are you here in a train station restaurant? <laughs> like, where are you going? And he's like, oh, and, and this was Jordan's line of... Uh, Nowhere. Who would I meet? Why bother? I only meet myself. And I remember it was like one of those like sort of uh, cryptic lines. But then I kept thinking about it. I'm like, what does that even mean? You meet yourself? I don't understand. Like, it's not like you met a version of yourself who likes laying at the bottom of the stairs and tricking people into uh, into these uh, high concept scenarios. I don't understand that Just line. Just to show you how much self-hatred Waldo has for himself. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. I just found it very bizarre that Waldo was like... Hanging out in a train station restaurant with no plan to ride the train, but then somehow also gets a train ticket and... Well, there is a bit of a um, a little plot hole there because they don't ever show that sort of... It's like Super Train, what we found is it's very easy to get a ticket for Super Train. because like space on it. And they're also, for a, for seemingly having a lot of security, people can get on and off no problem, <laughs> which is great if you want to murder someone. But yeah, what, <laughs> what we're going to learn real quick is that after they have their sort of parting, uh, Jack and... I can't remember her name. Sorry, it's Jack and Moira. They, they say goodbye at the train station. They're my favorite goodbye I've ever heard for a divorce couple is they're like... They like look at each other's eyes and they're like, well, better luck next time. You too. <laughs> <laughs> I was that just like, good. that's great. <laughs> uh, but yes, they get on this train. 
uh, and 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 we see as it parls out that Dick Van Dyke's gotten on, and like we know troubles are brewing, and we it cuts to the bar car where Moira's just uh, as we said being flirted with by everybody. Uh, Dave Noonan's there, who we saw in the pilot uh, flirting with someone's granddaughter. He's there doing bird calls, trying to impress her at the bar. <laughs> Very good bird calls, though. They were good bird calls. They are surprisingly good bird calls, but I do feel like. Um, the show feels like it did all the work you needed in introducing the characters in the first episode because <laughs> the actual recurring like characters in this show get almost nothing to do. And like Dave Noonan was a huge character in the first episode. In this episode, he kind of just walks in and makes a bird call. And he's like, see you later. I'm like, oh, okay, glad he was here. And it's because there's not enough time because the guest stars take up 95% of the screen time. They are the show for sure. Dave Noonan's then interrupted by a Texas stereotype who shows up to flip him over the bar so that he can also <laughs> flirt with Moira. Yeah. What was his deal? He was like like a like a rootin' tootin' oil baron. He was like a, a Yosemite Sam sort yeah, of character. Yeah, he definitely owned either an oil derrick or a ranch of some sort. Right, right. <laughs> Probably both. It was very much a stereotype from an era that I was just like, I know exactly what they're going for, but like I don't know where this is coming from. I'd be like, sir, uh, how do you feel about immigrants? He's like, well, here we go. <laughs> and of course, uh, as he's aggressively flirting with Moira, Dick Van Dyke intervenes and uh, stomps on his foot real hard. <laughs> really hard, because it like incapacitates him immediately. Yeah, he's, he's down for the count. Well, to be fair, when they did that cutaway of him stomping that foot, I'm like, well, that foot's broken for sure. <laughs> Everyone knows that Waldo has steel-heeled shoes, so that's a real bad stomp. Anyway, he he now starts hanging out with Moira in a very it's it's a very they're very much in a very flirtatious and I think it just Dick Van Dyke's charisma feels like makes it feel that way but it did feel very flirtatious they're hanging out they're having drinks he's playing the piano for her he wants to buy her a bathing suit so that they can go swimming later and I was just like very forward to buy a person you just met a bathing suit but she's into it that bathing suit scene was amazing where she's like oh you i'm not gonna let you buy me a bathing suit that's really weird and then he compares it to buying her flowers or a drink or something and i was like those are not the same equivalent at all <laughs> no but he talked her into it. he's like what's the big deal can i buy you flowers she's like yeah i guess that's fine he's like can i buy you a drink she's like fine he's like so what about a bathing suit red you size 10 and she's like uh, okay makes sense to me i was like wow that worked it worked, but it should not have worked. One of these things is like, you see me almost naked. One of them is, you bought me flowers. But they do sort of play with this sort of, um, you get the sense right away that we all know he might be creepy, but they're sort of playing with, he might be seducing her, but he might also be setting her up for a murder in a very like mousetrap-esque way where it's like there's apparently 45 steps to get there because i because the whole time i'm like what is his plan he's had like 85 chances to kill her but instead he's putting on bathing suits yeah it's very his character is always very nebulous i think even when he's playing piano here and asking to buy her bathing suit as the as the scene ends he like <laughs> devolves into a very dark place in the middle of the scene where he like stares off into the middle ground and like t turns off and looks and he's like that's what's wrong with the american people they've gotten soft physically and emotionally that's right. He's got a real problem with society. The pioneer spirit is dead. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those topics, if you're like a friend of his, you're like, guys, don't mention society because he's going to start going on and on about how much he hates things. He is, he's, it's, it's this very weird thing where he like feels very, very much like a taxi driver or something. It's, it's like <laughs> the De Niro's coming out in him. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Moira, she's still looking at this photo that Jack gave her and she's just like, Trying to decide what it means. So she's like, maybe I'll give him a call on the super trained phones and just we can. 
they never neither of them ever come out and ask like is this a message or do you still want to be together but she does call him they like avoid they avoid like telling each other the truth on the phone and like they've got communication issues you can see right off the bat a hundred percent and my favorite part is like as she's talking dick van dyke's there and she he like he like signals her he's like hey put me on the phone put me on the phone with your ex-husband come on come on and so she hands the phone over just as Dave Noonan walks by to distract her with more flirting. And uh, Jack and Dick Van Dyke have a phone call conversation where uh, Dick's, uh, Dick's just like, hey, FYI, I'm going to repay that debt I owe you. I'm going to kill your ex-wife. And he's, and Jack, of course, is like, please do not do that. And he's just like, no, no, I'm killing her. She's dead. I like it, though. It's like, he's like, hold on. Was that the conversation we had? He's like, yeah, yeah you told me to kill your wife. He's like, I don't think I did. I think we just had a drink. He's like, no, no, no. You told me to kill her. Don't worry. I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. I no, always pay my debts. I always do. Yeah. He's like, I'm telling you not to. It's like, nope, too late. I'm going to. You made a very significant statement. That yeah. that one-liner that I made? What? No, <laughs> that was completely a joke. like, do you remember when I asked you those very cryptic questions and you gave me non-answers? Well, I think we knew what we were saying. <laughs> A wink, wink. Um, and of course, this freaks Jack out. And he kind of... Uh, I'm going to break up the plot a little bit here because this will happen over the course of it. But essentially, he's just trying to like find some way now from New York of stopping Dick Van Dyke from killing Moira. This was probably the part of the episode that I was the most disappointed in because I think there was a lot that they could have done by getting Jack onto the train. But what you have is through the course of the you know next 45 minutes is that... He is trying to catch up to the train. And so you get a lot of like, he's trying to catch a cab. He's trying to get a plane. He's trying to get whatever. And we can discuss it. But because he's so detached, it's essentially the same scene over and over and over, which is him exasperated because he, he gets something is getting in his way. There's traffic or there's whatever yeah. it might be. And it just is kind of a bummer because I'm like, well, there's no like face off between him and, and Dick Van Dyke. There's no um, obstacles on the actual train because the show is called Super Train, but he is not, not on the on, Super Train. Not on episode. Super and I kind of was, I thought, oh, you kind of missed a turn there, guys. Yeah, like the beats are basically, he tries to call Super Train back and he doesn't know the number. So he calls the operator and the operator is just like, oh, you just have to call information. And he gets mad and hangs up. And I'm like, well, that's not going to help you. He then goes to the police station and he like tells them all about how like his wife's going to get killed. And they're like, Super train's not in our jurisdiction. And he's like, well, what about the FBI? Can they help me? And they're like, the FBI doesn't deal with murders. Also, that was the worst <laughs> cop ever. He, I like at the end of the scene, he was just like, near retirement. I'm like, well, just retire now. You suck. I loved that portrayal of a cop, though. It was very funny. Because, yeah, that cop is just like, he's just like, hey, why would you think this guy's going to kill your wife? And he's just like, well, we had a conversation at a bar. He's like, so did you hire him to kill your wife? And then Jack's just like, uh, I'm drunk. I gotta leave. Bye. <laughs> the cop was very not helpful and very aggressive simultaneously. It's true. And and I was like, that's probably the best portrayal of a cop uh, I've seen very in a long accurate. time. <laughs> I do like, though, when, when Jack realizes he might not be able to stop the murder and he might be tying himself to the murder, he immediately backs out of it like, well, if she does die, I don't want to get pinned on it, so I better just, like, leave right now. Jack says, he's thinking a few steps ahead just in case this goes wrong. <laughs> he's like, you didn't write down all that stuff I said about my wife getting murdered, right? Just in case she gets murdered, there's no, nothing's going to come back to no me? All right, I'll me. see you later. Cool. I, Jordan, and I guess Marshall, because you've watched the pilot episode, I just wanted to make a quick note that the police officer specifically says, the FBI cannot investigate a murder on the super train, because it's not their job. When in a, when the a pilot episode, an FBI got on the super train and investigated a murder in, in like the episode just before this. 
I think the cop literally was just trying to get him out of the door. That's all it was. He was just like, yeah, yeah, they don't have jurisdiction. He's like, anybody's like, no, there's nothing you can do. Sorry. Murder is not a federal crime. Yeah, not a federal crime. I thought it was very funny. I'm like, well, that was literally your last episode, but okay, let's keep going. But as you said, Jordan, he then decides he'll try to catch a flight to Chicago because that's yeah. where Super Train's like going to stop. And he's like, I might just have enough time to fly into Chicago, get on that train and stop him. And then we get like this back and forth of just like, I need to get to JFK, but it's too far away. I only have 24 minutes to get there. And like he pulls a cab over and the cab's just like, we'll never make it. And he's like, will $100 bend space and time? The cab driver's like, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, there's just and it's like that sort of scene over and over. Like there's at least three scenes of him at the airport trying to get tickets. It's just like I just kind of thought it was like, all right, guys, we got it. He's he's having trouble because what they really want to focus on is Dick Van Dyke and uh, Moira getting into weird situations where he might kill her. It's a lot of like he's like, do you want a smoothie? Don't put your hand in that blender. That didn't happen. But it was a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, you didn't like the sequence. I love the sequence because it was very for me. Every time they cut back, it was extra dumb what was happening. Like he gets to the airport. He's five minutes too late for the flight to Chicago and there's not another one leaving. So he gets on a payphone and calls the airport he's at and says, hey, there's a hijacker on that flight to Chicago. So the air so the airport calls the flight to Chicago back to New York, the one that just left. And then he's just like, when it lands to be investigated for a hijacking, he somehow buys a ticket to now get on that flight. And the investigation takes so little time, the flight's still able to take off with enough time for him to get to Chicago. It was amazing. It, it was like he could, they, they redid the boarding after the investigation. And I was like, is it not suspicious at all that somebody from a payphone just phoned and then immediately a guy comes over and is like, can I buy a ticket for that plane that's turning around? <laughs> How did you know it was turning around? It was so complicated. I was just like, I don't understand where the even idea for this came from. <laughs> but yeah, he gets the, he, he gets the plane turned around. He somehow gets a ticket on it. He gets on it and he's just like, well, I should have just enough time to make it to Chicago. Um, Anyway, let's pop. Let's we'll pop back to the train and check in with Jack a little later. But while he's in the air, Dick Van Dyke, of course, is like plotting a variety of ways to murder Moira, or that, so it seems to the audience. And uh, as he does that, his path crosses with the B plot on the sh- on this episode. <laughs> Problem, children. Oh, th- this is I. I forgot. I I take back what I said about the worst part being uh, uh, Larry Linville not being able to make the plane. The worst part is these kids, which don't add anything to this episode. And it just seems like it seems something from this time period. We've seen a couple times. The thing that comes to mind right away is the, uh, the super troop kids from um, Galactica 1980. It's that same sort of thing where it's like, Hey, we got to have some kid characters be like rambunctious, annoying things for some reason. That's what we need, need, need in a TV show. And that's all it is. It's a lot of like, Kids are putting whoopee cushions under people's butts. Can you believe it? Except these kids are letting people on fire. Yeah, yeah a, woman, a woman is literally burnt to death. <laughs> well, she's not burned to death. <laughs> I, I like that also this is episode two, and we have a new set of the super train owner's grandchildren riding the train. Like, it's just another set of grandchildren are on the train. Well, he's been having kids over a long amount of time, so he has some, like, older, hotter grandkids, and then he has these young brat ones, too. Yeah, these ones are, like, seven-year-old wealthy monsters. And, yes, as you said... Their the, the pranks involve, like, one of them throws an orange so hard at a man's face, it explodes. <laughs> but the man is not injured. The man is not injured. They do, as we mentioned, light a woman on fire. Uh, they dye a woman's hair green at the hair salon. They're just pulling all kinds of insane pranks. And uh, 
I guess one of the reoccurring Super Train cast, Rose, who I didn't remember explicitly from the pilot, but she's some, for some reason put in charge of watching them. And all, all the scenes are just her being like, I wish I could punish them, but I can't because they're wealthy. Yeah, she wants to, to beat the hell out of them, but she can't. Or she wants to smoke, but Dick Van Dyke, it, like, browbeats her for smoking. <laughs> Society. Uh. Anyway, uh, so Dick Van Dyke, he's got Moira up on the balcony on this train. That You remember you remember this balcony from last episode where you can stand on the end of the train and look off the side for some reason that's going, like, <laughs> hundreds of miles an hour? I had a weird question. Uh, geographically on this train, is this the same platform that in the next episode the politician's going to be making speeches from? Uh, no, I believe he's doing that from the side. I think they opened the side doors up, maybe? I'm not sure. Man, this, this is some sort of super train. <laughs> it really is. I thought the speech, politician speeches, he got off the train onto like a platform. I think that might be got back on the train and left. Oh, you might be right. Um, but they're on that balcony. And uh, Dick Van Dyke, of course, is like having Moira like lean over the end to look at the tracks go by. And she's slowly being hypnotized by them. And we're like, oh, no, is Dick Van Dyke going to push her off the train? But those bratty little kids set off some firecrackers and it distracts Dick Van Dyke from what he's working on, which is murder. <laughs> but what I love is Dick Van Dyke turns around. He sees the children. and He's just like, this is what's wrong with this country, these children. <laughs> and he starts like stalking them until the until Rose, the babysitter, like intervenes. And he turns to her and says, if you want them to get any older, do not let them do that again. And I was just like, is Dick Van Dyke going to also murder these children? Because I'm down if he is. Well, we Please. should keep a list of things that Dick Van Dyke doesn't like. So he doesn't like smoking. He doesn't like... Uh, Our uh, weak moral fiber. Yeah, weak moral fiber. And he doesn't like children. So that's the things you got to stay away from when talking to him. I think he would like children if they were like seen but not heard. Mm, and not smoking. <laughs> uh, at any rate... Dick Van Dyke then, after failing this murder plot, takes Moira out for some dinner and drinks and dancing. They have a nice slow dance for a while. It's very romantic. Um, and then he finally says, like, remember that swimsuit I bought you? Let's go <laughs> swimming. And it's a very convoluted sequence that I, like, you can barely track what's happening. Like, you get the intent It's of the way it, it was edited. It was, yeah. it was edited, and so you're, like, confused as to what's sort of happening here. Exactly. She dives in the pool. You see Dick Van Dyke's rockin' hot body. He dives in the pool. <laughs> the lights suddenly go out. And if you recall uh, from last episode, this pool has a window in the bottom of it that looks into the bar car, as we yeah. said, like a zoo with penguins. And the staff is in there, so they cannot no longer see what's happening in the pool because the lights have gone out. So they start walking around, and they come to realize the lights are out because the children have actually played a prank and turned all the lights out. It's not Dick Van Dyke. The children have turned the lights out for some reason. And when they flip the lights back on, Moira appears to be drowning, and Dick Van Dyke's underwater with her, and he's just like, he like gives a look like, uh-oh, almost caught red-handed, and he has to like pull her out to save her? Now, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. What I thought was implied was she was in the water, he was jumping into the water just as the lights were turned off, and he accidentally knocked her out. Oh. That's what I thought. Maybe. Marshall, do you agree? That's all I could figure it out to be, because I was like... Yeah, it, it wasn't super clear, but I was like, maybe maybe that's what happened is that, like, his jumping in harmed her. So let's say the lights didn't go out because you're right, Luke. At first you think, oh, this is part of his plan that no one can see him murder her in the pool. I mean, it's a long way to go, but sure, why not? But if he didn't turn the lights out, was he just going for a nighttime swim with her? This just, That's all he was, that was his plan was just swimming? Well, we're almost at the big reveal, but I believe the answer is yes. <laughs> 
Right, right. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's very bizarre. His his behavior with Moira the entire time doesn't make any sense. That like, why would he be super threatening to right. her? Because she has no context for the threat. Yeah, absolutely. It's as as if he thinks Jack is watching his every move. Well, right, that's the yeah. thing. the The main problem is that he's acting in a way to signal things to the audience, but in the world that we're existing in, it doesn't really work at all. Not absolutely. At all. She she's pulled out of the pool. She does not drown. She's saved. And Dick Van Dyke's like, "Hey, let's take you to bed. Let's get you some rest. But before <laughs> you go to sleep, I think you should drink a cup of warm milk." And and we get. The most ominous shot of uh, Dick Van Dyke carrying a cup of milk down a hallway. Like, it's just, like, so low-angled. The milk is right in front of his face, and he's just glowering. I was just like, this this shot is amazing and insane at the same time. Because, again, you're supposed to think he, I don't know, Bill cosby did it in some way, you know? Something's wrong with that milk, you're supposed to think. Drink this all down. Yeah, he, he hands it to Whoa. her and leans in real close and watches her drink the whole cup of milk. And he's just like, now go to sleep. And as he leaves, he stops the the Porter Boone, who featured heavily last in the pilot, and says, gives him gives him a big tip and says, no one is to disturb her. And he walks away. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, he's done it. He's murdered Moira finally. So, I mean, we, we could come back to this. But again, in real world, he's not being creepy. He no. just wants to give her a glass of milk, and yes. he really is—he's really worried about her being disturbed. Yes, absolutely. Okay. These things are in the real in the reality. He's actually being very nice and just wants her to drink a cup of milk. Right. Super charismatic. Anyway, that that plane that Jack was on finally lands in Chicago. He runs out. We do the same cab scene again, where he tries—he runs through a, a group of people trying to get a cab and jumps in and says, "Get me to the train station." The man's like, "Nah." And he's like, "I'll give you twenty dollars." He's like, "Oh, in that case." That's what Dick Van Dyke's complaining about the society. All it takes is a little extra money and gets you where you got to get, you know? You just exchange some goods and services for money. Yeah. and then... <laughs> But then the cab driver's like, oh, no, we're not going to make it now. I'm getting pulled over. I know. It's great. This is this is, this is is why this sequence is awesome, even though like, it's like, so pointless. But <laughs> cab's pulled over by a motorcycle cop. Jax just starts raving to the motorcycle cop about a man on the super train trying to kill his wife. The cop rolls his eyes, but somehow the thing the cop hears is, there's a man with my wife on the super train. And that's what he relates to. He's just like, well, that, we can't have that. Another man can't be with your wife. Hop on the back of my motorcycle. I will get you there in time. And as they speed off, the cop turns around, turns around and says, welcome to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and the cab driver doesn't get his fare. That was my favorite part too. Yeah. Is as they as they speed away, I was just like, I was thinking, I'm like, I'm like, well, that cab driver didn't get paid, and they cut back to the cab driver getting out his cab, screaming, "I didn't get paid." <laughs> they so, thought of everything. I was like, consistency. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's no plot holes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jack gets the super train. He races to Moira's compartment on the super train. He gets there. Boone's apparently standing guard outside the door, and he's just like, "Sir, I'm sorry, sir. Her boyfriend said she's not to be disturbed." To which Jack says, but I'm her husband. And uh, Boone's like, oh, in that case, let me open this up for you. I love that in the 1970s, you don't need any proof of being someone's husband or, you know, just like, you no, say not it at and all. everyone believes you. Everybody believe everyone's just like, hey, extramarital affairs, no thank you. Let me get you in that door. What well, is also, it's like, if that lady paid for a ticket and she's in her personal compartment and who cares whoever comes someone's like i'm i'm her father i'm her son or i'm you'll be like 
yeah, sorry. That's her That's her place. She's paid for it. You can't come in. Yeah, I can't unlock this door and just let you in, a stranger. <laughs> but that's not how Boone feels. Boone, uh, no. Boone. He, I mean, Jack, to be fair, took out his marriage certificate and showed it to him so he could be sure it was real. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my ID. Here's my marriage certificate. Look at this. Anyway, he busts in and he races. We, we watch Jack race to Moira and he starts shaking her. He's like, oh, no, Moira. But she just wakes up from her from her sleep because she's just been asleep. At which point, Dick Van Dyke emerges from the shadows and explains the whole thing was just a, just a fun plan to get them back together. Wasn't it fun, you guys? Didn't you guys have a nice time? He was teaching them that they actually are in love with each other, and he wanted to show him. When he was saying, what would it be like if someone killed your wife? He basically was like, you would, you would realize how much you loved her. And that was this incredibly inappropriate way to get these two people back together. I mean, and then when we, when, like that's it, he's got them back together. And the last we see of Dick Van Dyke, he's now laying on the floor of the Chicago train station, having people step over him again when a new Good Samaritan bends down. And I'm just like, uh, like, I know they're trying to make him this like touched by an angel kind of twinkle man. But I'm like, this man is still a complete psychopath, like a complete psychopath to be doing this. Also, let's say, let's say this, he does this plan all the time, which is what they're implying. It can't always just be like, you know, star-crossed lovers that have fallen apart or something like that. So what if this guy's whole deal is like, yeah, I'm taking the train because I uh, my car broke down. Is he going to go through a whole bunch of convoluted plots to teach the mechanic a lesson? Like, I don't understand what, what this could work be every week, you know? It is. It, it does feel like you're watching the pilot to a different television show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But but I should say, Dick Van Dyke though is is such a charismatic actor though that he's so watchable the whole episode. You're just like, yeah, checks out. I mean, he's great. He's he's doing a great job. And like, it was just it was just that it's such a weird plot line. And like, ignoring the fact, let's pretend that like all the stuff where he was super creepy was just for the audience sake. Like like let's say like if there was a reality to the show, he wasn't as creepy all the time. It still doesn't explain his threatening the children. His talking about the weak moral fiber of America. Like, there's still a dark thread running through this man that is like, like, he's going to kill a president at some point. Well, to be fair, I do think it adds up a little bit. Maybe this is giving the show too much credit, but he is still a man who apparently spends all of his time doing these convoluted uh, getting on and off a train thing. So, like, he... I think you're supposed to think he's not normal, right? Like, that's not a normal thing people would do. I don't know if it entirely tracks with him wanting to murder children, but I think you get the sense that he's not entirely there. Yeah, yeah. It's it was it's Dick Van Dyke's doing a great job, but it was a weird character for sure. Um, before we move on to the next episode, though, I just want I want to close out the little brats plot the, with the wealthy little brats <laughs> plot. Yeah, that's they, very important. It's very important because they really figured out what to do with them is. They're gonna. They are setting up a classic bucket over a door prank to get a uh, Harry the conductor, and uh, they filled that bucket with mustard and ketchup. Apparently, which I I thought for sure was going to be urine, but I was wrong. <laughs> but what they do is the super strange staff has decided no more, no punishing these kids. So they they turn the prank on its head, and the kids walk in. They think they're going to see Harry covered in ketchup and mustard when he walks through the door, but in fact, the entire super train staff dumps the bucket on top of the kids and starts laughing at them. And the final shot is the kids weeping. Yeah. Like, I don't know if they learn anything. They just seem to be weeping. Like, it was just like, I'm like, what is supposed to be happening here? I watched that scene like eight times trying to puzzle out how that prank was supposed to function. Because they had this little like circular reel of something. 
and I could not figure out what that was, but they, they made a big deal about it. They showed it like three times and then, and then they showed the conductor being like, ha ha ha, I have the thing. I was like, what is that? I wonder if it was fishing line. And so like it was a trip wire maybe they built, but then the conductor took it and just pulled it when they walked through. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. That was my best guess as well. I was like, I, that must be fishing line. And, and they somehow predicted the prank the kids were going to play and foiled it before the kids did it, which is also like amazing foresight on the part of the staff. Guys, you're missing the point. The point is the kids got ketchup and mustard all over themselves. <laughs> they got their comeuppance. That's the point. It doesn't matter how it happened. It doesn't matter any of the, the logistics. The important part is they're full of ketchup and mustard. Yes, yes. It's not that they didn't learn a lesson. They just got <laughs> pranked by adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now every time they go to a barbecue or something, they have post traumatic stress. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get let's move on to the next episode, you guys. Here is the IMDb summary for episode three, Hail to the Chief. Uh no summary available. <laughs> <laughs> it's not needed. Ellis, I I know over the years I've done things that haven't exactly made you proud of me. Well, it's no excuse. But I've had to do these things just to get where I am. Now, these polls say I'm going to make it. And when I do, you're going to find out who I really am. I wish I could believe that. You can. Starting tonight. Little dinner, little dancing. What do you say? It's been a long time. Yes, it has, JJ. It starts off again, as always, at Grand Central Station. Super Train never comes back from L.A. It only leaves from Grand Central Station. <laughs> uh, this time, the front runner for the presidential uh, race that's happening currently, Senator Jackson J. Phillips, or J.J., is uh, using the Super Train for one last whirlwind campaign tour the day before the election. And let me just mention on IMDb, he's credited as William Phillips. <laughs> Not J.J. That's weird. Yeah. It's because no one cares. <laughs> I mean, there's no summary. No one's no one's put any work into this. <laughs> this IMDb page has been abandoned. Yeah. Um, at any rate, Supertrain is hosting him for this big event because, as the conductor Harry tells them, we have to because our business is run on government subsidies. And I was just like, oh, so Supertrain is a bad business. Well, he, does this jive with what we learned in the first episode, which they sort of implied there's a board of directors who all have some sort of stake into this company and their somewhat eccentric uh, president or CEO or whatever he was has taken upon himself to have this sort of crazy idea of a super train. And they're all like, I can't believe you're going to bankrupt us. And he's like, don't matter to me, I'm dying. And so they made this super train, but there was no implications that he needed government. No, no. Uh, In the uh, pilot, uh, they said the government was contracting them to do it. Oh, really? Oh, so then I take back everything I said. But then in that case, the board shouldn't be upset by this. If it's a guaranteed government contract with the money and the subsidies, they'd be like, yes, get me on that government teat, please. Yeah, this it turns out Winfield, the owner of Supertrain, is a real Elon Musk. He's like just he's just taking government money to build future projects that are a disaster. Like that's all he's doing. Like Supertrain apparently is a completely insolvent company that's only being buoyed by the government. But, but, but is one of the conditions that if politicians need to use your train for a headquarters for an election, you have to give it to them? Well, they still have to pay. 
I think this is more about corruption or like or not corruption, but like, well, we better like this guy might be the president. So we better like wet his beak a little, give him a nice time so that he gives us more subsidies when he becomes president. I think it's more that is the idea. They don't want to piss off a future president. Also, I I don't know um, if anyone else has seen it, but has there ever been a president or prime minister or whatever, a leader of a country who, when the election results are coming in, is literally just still traveling? Because that's what they have this whole – the whole point of this is the election is happening while he's on this train ride, and it's like – it just seems so bizarre. Like, I mean, I'm not against the idea. It just seems odd that they'd be like, oh, we're in Chicago now. We're up 13%. Anyway. Yeah, I think – I don't think that I, – I thought that was pretty normal. Like, uh, the, yeah? the final day of campaigning, you're still out doing things, visiting places. It happens. All right. I'll allow it. I'll make a note here, too, because this this episode happens in 1979, and I guess this was an episode because the following year was the 1980 presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, can you guess who the two candidates were? Yeah, Jimmy Carter and uh, Jimmy Carter won, and he was against—I'm trying to remember who he was running against. It wasn't Nixon, was it? I'm afraid no. you're almost correct, Jordan. Oh, Jimmy Carter was 78 to 82, wasn't he? I don't remember. Jordan, you're, you're so close. It, what it was, it was Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan— Ronald Reagan oh. wins. Oh, it was the it was the, Jimmy Carter was going for a second term. Yes, I see, yes. right? And uh, of course, we know we all know Ronald Reagan best from his uh, space station in Star Cops. <laughs> yeah, it worked out well for everyone. He was a great president. Absolutely. <laughs> um, anyway, this is happening outside Super Train. It's going to be this big political episode. We know that much for sure. But while this is happening, there's also a motley crew boarding the super train with a plan to kidnap Senator J.J. for $10 million. So, and uh, Luke or uh, Marshall, you guys might have got this, and we don't have to talk about it right now. But the question I have is, I don't understand where the $10 million are coming from. Well, we'll talk about this plot a little bit now. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the, the plan is, basically. It's run by a ringleader, Eddie, who is J.J.'s twin brother. Yeah, yeah. And then he's working with a magician slash pickpocket named Misto. Yeah, yeah, that's the guy played by Victor Bueno. Uh huh. And then their their final two compatriots are two little people known as Mick and Mac. Yeah, and I have to say this wasn't nearly as offensive as I thought it was going to be when I first saw them come on the screen. I was like, oh, this is going to be problematic, and it's it's not good, but it's not nearly as bad as you think it could be. No, they're everyone's surprisingly well-rounded characters, and like I, they only refer to them as little people the entire episode, which I was just like, "Whoa, I'm blown away that you guys showed this much." Shocked, I to the point that I literally think maybe the actor who played Misto refused to say any other because he's the only one who ever says it, and he and I'm just like he must have refused to say some lines. I think because I I just this this show has no restraint, so I don't know why it was. So I'm I'm crediting Misto. For uh, oh, sure. For for the for the kindness that sh- this episode showed, they have planned a scheme to break into JJ's compartment during the trip, sedate him, hide his body in a casket, and then Eddie will replace him an old switcheroo as the presidential candidate during this trip. And mm-hmm. if all goes well, uh, they'll get ten million dollars somehow from this plan, which I don't think ever made any sense. No, but, but, okay, so it was Eddie the whole time made up the $10 million. That was fake. No, I I know that. I got that. But what did he tell them? Like, what was in, when he convinced them that they'd get $10 million, what did he, how were they going to get the $10 million? That's what Probably that the mafia did it. <laughs> the mafia. <laughs> that is the question. It's like, the plan is to replace JJ with Eddie. That's what they know. That's what these, that's what this gang knows they're going to do. 
But I don't understand. I just don't understand where it like do this get ten million dollars. I don't know where they think that. Yeah, $10 like it seems like the from. conversation was he's like he knows that he just wants to replace his brother. And he's like, hey, I'm gonna be able to get you guys ten million dollars. They're like, great. He's like, so we need to abduct this guy. And they go, cool. And he goes, and then we'll get ten million. And they go, sounds like a solid plan to me. Exactly. I mean, like it could have been a business lobby that was like, if we can replace the president with somebody that we own, literally, then uh, it'll be good for us for for business reasons. We'll give his gang $10 million. This is perfect, right? See, and that does make some sense, except for the one part of the plan, which is don't murder JJ, which I'm just <laughs> like, so there, there's like a thing here where it's like JJ does not cease to be alive. So there's the problem that you have a person who will want his life back at some point in the near future. And, and let me ask something, and I don't mean this to be insensitive, but because Misto is a magician mm-hmm. and I know there's a thing we're going to get to very quick where he like is able to steal a key which I thought was a pretty good thing because he has a sleight of hand um, and the two little people Mick and Mac is that their names? That's their names. Mick and Mac I don't know if uh, the plan played to their strengths because we're going to see a thing where they're able to get to a smaller compartment because they're smaller people but other than that are they bringing anything to the table because the rest of the time they seem to just be in a room chilling like I don't, I just don't know, like, maybe that's, I don't mean this to be like, it needs to be like a circus thing where they one knows how to do a trapeze or something. But I was like, in terms of the episode, why did they have to be little people? Honestly, it, it, it no reason. Right. Only because he used to hang around in circuses. Yes, that's it. He's just like, I ran away to the circuses and carnivals at some point. I'm like, so these are maybe just his friends. It could have been Jojo, the dog face boy. It didn't matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and this plan seems like it's going to go off with a hitch, except... JJ's estranged wife has joined the campaign, this final campaign trail, because the campaign manager wants them to be seen together. And they're a little worried that this estranged wife is going to know the difference between JJ and Eddie. And it's this is the one played by Loretta Swit. And I kind of like this. And I think they didn't do enough at the beginning of showing how bad the relationship is between JJ and his ex-wife. Cause it's clearly like he's running for president. We kind of get a sense. He's, he's a bit of a jerk and he's his a ex-wife. Yeah, and his ex-wife's coming just to put up appearances as, you know, they're in the final stretch of this campaign and she needs to, you know, shake some hands and uh, and, all, and all that sort of stuff. But at, it's like she, she does her turn real quick, like almost faster than Moira in the previous episode where it's the same sort of thing. There's an ex-wife who it won't take very much to get her to fall in love again, you know? Yeah, yeah. She meets him. They meet up. He's, he's kinder than he used to be as evidenced by the fact that uh, Eddie tips better than J.J., which is maybe I my favorite way. I love that. Yeah, that's a running. That's a running thing through this whole episode. It is. is that is is the tip amounts people get. Oh, this is a better tip. I see you're a good man now. <laughs> I loved Boone's line though of like, "Oh, thanks. Well, never let it be said that you're buying votes." <laughs> Boone really does. Boone's the best character for me. He gets the best lines. Like when he gets a better tip, he's like, "Well, this will stimulate the economy." I mean, like, what was the tip the first time, though? I'm guessing it was, like, a quarter, because it was a single It was, was a very little, coin. yeah. It was, like, change, yeah. And I was like, that must be just a quarter. Like, he just gave him, flipped him a quarter. I do like, in this episode, we get a sense, too, of uh, the conductor, Harry. He doesn't he doesn't like that the candidate's on the train. He'll do it, because they need the subsidies. But then what, the other crew's just like, well, he doesn't like him, because he's to the right of Hoover. And I'm like, oh, we're really getting the political landscape now of the uh, Super Train <laughs> cast. Yeah. <laughs> Noonan the Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as we kind of mentioned, Eddie starts rekindling his romance or rekindling his romance. He starts rekindling the marriage of Alice and JJ just by being like a nicer guy and like 
ignoring his, the advice of his like campaign manager. And did we say that the switch has already happened? Like it has. You think it would be this would be more of like a caper this episode of how like you know the whole process of we oh, meet yeah. these circus people. But and like what's going to happen to beat the switch? But the switch takes all of I think like two scenes where it's like we have the key, we can get into the thing. The little people are able to get through the carpet, through the floor, and switch the body. Like it happens like nothing. Like it's not a real. Without it's just a like hitch. oh, let's get that out of the way without a hitch. <laughs> yeah, and and Misto distracts the campaign manager by pretending to be a journalist who wants to write a story about him. That's and, right. And has yeah, a, a thousand questions, and the campaign manager is totally fine with this. He loves it. He's like, oh, about me? Why didn't you say so? Flattered. <laughs> but, but yes, Eddie. Eddie is winning his his uh, brother's wife's over by being a nice and b. The campaign manager is really pushing him to like. He's like, here, here's the list of campaign uh, cabinet positions we're we're posting. It's all these like special interest groups. We're going to give great positions. They they apparently have bought and paid millions of dollars to be like placed into government to like lobby the way they want to lobby or whatever. You know, classic government, classic corrupt politicians, um, and. Eddie won't do it now. He won't make these announcements. And uh, he, and Alice is so impressed by her husband. She's just like, look at him. He's playing by his own rules now. Can you believe it if uh, Dick Van Dyke was in this? He'd been so angry at the corruption. <laughs> this is what he's worried about, that moral, the moral fortitude of America. Mm-hmm. But this plays out over like maybe 20 minutes of this like w- no one's noticing he's a new man uh, except like 20 20 minutes in alice turns around and she's like hey fyi i know you're not my husband i've known since basically the start uh you're clearly you clearly must be his twin brother uh, even though he told me you were dead i you must be his twin brother yeah i love that though i love that that's how they get around it they're like yeah he just told everyone that the brother's dead and one's like yeah checks out it makes sense though that she would tell them apart because like i don't know even even identical twins when you're Adults in your, I don't know, 40s, 50s, I don't know how old they are exactly, but they're running for president, so they got to be somewhere. You, you're not the same. You're not, like, I don't know if the people know how identical twins work, but... They're the same person, aren't they? <laughs> they just have the a different name, of one everything person. else about them is identical. <laughs> Mannerisms, speech patterns, everything. Marshall, every movie and TV show I've ever watched about uh, identical twins is played by the same actor, so I don't know what to tell you. They're clearly the same. <laughs> But but I did I did like though that it was uh, again they sort of uh, subverted expectations intentionally or otherwise of having instead of having her be fooled through the whole episode she's just like by the way I know you're not my husband because you're nothing like him and, yeah we slow and, danced and, all night my my husband would never do that <laughs> yeah and I I just I like that and it was just like she was in on it but doesn't care because she doesn't like her husband and she doesn't like his campaign and she doesn't like anything about what's happening so she's like yeah I'll go with it I don't care but. She, she specifically says, is it any wonder that I would be attracted to you? You look exactly like my husband. She's shallow. And so she's able to just fully transfer her love from her husband to his twin brother. And be like, yep, well, she we're physically madly, loved truly him. in love. It was the personality that's the problem. He fixed that. That's why the bears <laughs> are working. She's like, I love the package. The body, oof, this is exactly what I'm into. But like, yeah, the personality, not so hot. On, on a side note, there, when I was in high school, there were twins, these two girls, <laughs> and this one guy dated one of the twins, but they were always hanging out, and then they broke up, and he dated the other twin. <laughs> no. No joke. Yeah. Yeah. Now that is classic high school. Yeah, he has a type. <laughs> it's, uh, twins. <laughs> <laughs> he kept asking. He's like, do you guys have another sister? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
At any rate, now that it's all out in the open between uh, Eddie and Alice, Eddie kind of explains that like he ran away from home years ago to join circuses and carnivals because I guess JJ was such a bastard growing up. He like nearly killed their mother and like broke their father's heart. So JJ has always been apparently some sort of terrible like monster this whole his whole life. Typical politician. Typical politician. Yeah. Did they ever though Im- imply or outwardly? explain what it was that people liked about him so much because the, the like the what they keep saying throughout this episode is that like he's gonna win like he's mm-hmm. ahead he's people ahead. like him so like i don't i don't know like i know they're talking about corruption and stuff but there's something that people like about him right like is it just that he's a good politician i think he's charismatic basically is the, i think that's all they're going on it's like this is a real charismatic guy who's gonna win this election because people like him because he's a farm boy they say it's a boy a farm boy oh that's from right. california <laughs> that's right 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 did you notice uh, when when uh, JJ did his speech, he he did the the double V. Yes, I did. And Very I was much. just like, I guess that's a way to show corruption. <laughs> <laughs> Still very much in the zeitgeist. Because I don't think any politician since Nixon has done that. It's just been like, oh no, that is not a thing you can do. <laughs> Real short saying it's, it's it's the equivalent of the Hitler mustache. They're like, mm, maybe grow up the sides a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You you just can't do that. At any rate, JJ explains to Alice that he hatched this plan to replace his brother when he when he saw that his brother was running for president and that he was likely going to win. He just he just the whole thing is just like he could not abide by the concept of his dumb brother being the president. Oh, and I should mention just as a side note that the plot of this really did feel like another show we watched, Luke, which was uh, a TV movie, which was The Astronaut. Didn't oh, it? That's true. That's very much the re- that replacing somebody with a, a doppelganger and then like having a plan to kill him or like make him disappear. And then having them fall in love. Oh, yeah. And then, yes, that's right. That's right. They did fall in love, didn't they? I forgot about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, very she much. is the same thing. They the, She really liked the replacement better. Anyways, that's just, just a deep cut for uh, anyone who's listened to that episode. For any any uh, men with wives at home, be careful. A doppelganger could easily steal her. <laughs> he just got to take her dancing. So yes, JJ wants to replace his brother just because he doesn't, or Eddie wants to replace his brother JJ because he just doesn't want him to become president because he like doesn't like him that much. And his plan is essentially, his plan that he hasn't told his gang is that he's going to replace him, he's going to win, become president of the United States, and then he's going to resign for health reasons and leave the presidency to the vice president, who he deems to be an honorable man. This is a long con. Don't you think, though, it would have been better of him just to be like, I'll just become president and do what I think is better? I was also just like, I'm like, I, I also thought, I'm like, if you become president, I'm like, yeah, I are you really going to resign? Really? <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm, I thought it was kind of like he knew he couldn't hold this con off for long enough yeah, to be maybe. president forever. Mm-hmm. But also, just to keep that con up for the three months until you're actually president is still a very difficult thing to do. Well, what do you do with JJ? Like, he's going to wake up eventually. And, like, he's not he's not dead. JJ's just, like, asleep in a coffin for two days. Like, what are you going to do for three months with your angry brother who's mad at you for stealing his identity? Like, I just, none of this made, none of this, like, added up to me. Handcuff him to a pipe in the basement. Like you do with everyone you abduct. In the basement of the White House. (laughs) They gave him a needle. That's what knocked him out, right? Yeah, they like tranked him up good. It would have been better if they'd also just given him a glass of milk. And in this universe, milk just immediately knocks a person out. Makes you so sleepy. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, now that he's told Alice the whole plan, he's like, I'm going to call it all off. I don't want to implicate you in this whole thing. It was a dumb idea, which he's right. It was a dumb idea. 
And uh, I have to figure out what to tell my friends who I told $10 million was coming their way, even though at no point was $10 million in any part of this plan ever coming their way. Yeah, I think these poor, I feel the, the bad, you know, for these uh, poor uh, circus folk who just got hoodwinked by this guy. You know, they just wanted a little little money and there's no money coming to them. Nothing's coming their way. And Eddie, basically what he does is he uh, he basically knows they're going to have one last stop before they reach L.A., it's the stop where he's supposed to get, where where the president's supposed to get off. The president's supposed to get off. There, it's in his hometown. He's going to vote, give a big speech, and then like it'll be the final stop of the tour. And so he's just like, "What we're going to do is, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk to my Carney friends and be like, hey, Alice has figured out I'm not JJ.' And the and also the, so now the whole campaign knows. And what they've offered is a, a deal. I will take the rap for all of it, and they'll let the three of you escape at the next stop if we just call it off now. And and his carny friends are like initially agree, but then they're like, "Ah, it sucks. We're not going to get ten million dollars, eh?" And they're like, "Hey, what if just just spitball here, you guys? What if we get off at the next stop, Needles, California, and we just take JJ's body in that casket with us? We just take it with us, and then we just keep the kidnapping going. Why end the party here? We can just take him with us." And that's basically what they do. Yeah, they like that idea. At the next stop. They get off the train. They have the casket taken off with it. They load it onto the back of the truck and they drive off. Super train departs. And uh, the audience is like, oh, no, they've stolen uh, JJ's body. But soon, none of that comes to matter because as as they drive away, the inec- the election's results are announced. And just like apropos to nothing that anyone did in this episode, JJ loses the election. Yeah, which was weird because they kept saying like over and over that he's really far ahead and like he's going to win this election and then somehow he just doesn't because of convenience they did they did mention though the the uh what is it uh truman huey yes upset. they did they did have a newscast come on and say it's the most it's the biggest upset since truman and huey and i was like okay i mean you guys are familiar with truman and huey right I, I'm, I am familiar like with that them. there's the picture of truman as yeah. president-elect holding the paper that says huey elected president Yes, of course. Yeah, so it's that sort of scenario. But it was just interesting because nothing the characters did, I felt like, affected that outcome. It just happened. And so the Carnies are now driving to the countryside with this casket, and they hear the announcement that J.J. has not won the presidency. And they're like, ah, just like us to pick a loser. I guess we'll just toss the casket on the side of the road and keep going. I definitely would have... I It would have made much more sense because... Eddie was throwing these speeches, uh, like right. making them really weird. And it's the last day, so like maybe. But it would have made more sense if if there was like, ah, we're down 10 points since you made that speech back in Evansville. Like even just a throwaway line. <laughs> right, right. But I would even argue that he, was, he wasn't doing the speeches his campaign manager wanted, but his, his speeches were all about, like, cutting, like, draining the swamp and, like, not letting corruption get into, like, they weren't technically bad speeches. They were just, they were upsetting the people who had paid for their cabinet positions, but were actually yeah. probably decent campaign speeches. I think his popularity would have gone up is what I'm saying. But in, <laughs> in, world, in world logic, what is Eddie's plan? Because he thinks... I'm assuming, like everyone else, that he thinks at this point that his brother's still going to win the election, 100%, right? Hundred percent. So, 
So what did he think was going to happen by switching himself and putting it in the casket? Well, that's the big reveal. They throw the the carnies throw the casket out of the back of the truck because they're like, well, he's not the president, so he's not worth this man we've kidnapped, this wealthy politician we've kidnapped is not worth it anymore. Toss him out the back of the truck. And as they drive away, the coffin lid opens and we realize smiling in the back of the coffin is now Eddie. Eddie has actually swapped places with his brother as a way to escape the train. Yeah. And then when we cut back to the train... JJ's waking up, mostly nude in the baggage cart, being like, somebody tried to kidnap me, call the FBI. And I, I Jordan, to your point, I think what it is is he's just, he, he decides, like, this is his way off the train, got free, his buddies will get away, and if JJ wins the presidency, he'll still be president. Like, I guess JJ will still end up being president. But... Be- so, so I guess that's the thing. So, so he figured at a certain point, I know we've gone to all this trouble, but... Whatever. He just gives up. I'm just gonna. He just gives up. He yeah, just he doesn't fall. He doesn't fall for the sunk cost fallacy. Right? <laughs> sure, I've put the work in, but it's not worth it. I'm I'm cutting my losses and getting out of here. Eddie's a smart right. man. He's a smart man. But we kind of end the as the episode wraps up. Now JJ's running around the train in his underwear, shouting for the FBI, saying, "I'm the president. They can't do this to me." And then when he goes to his campaign headquarters and starts demanding, they like like call somebody the secret service somebody to help him he's almost been kidnapped everybody in his campaign office couldn't give two shits about him anymore because he's not the president so they're like sure sure jj whatever you say i'm gonna get drunk you lost the presidency and and jj's carted off like a raving madman to the uh yeah. super trained doctor's office yeah there's no respect for him as a senator <laughs> nobody could care less and the episode concludes with uh the wife alice receiving a telegram in her compartment on the way to la and it's from eddie and I guess her and Eddie are going to run away together and start a new life on her uncle's boat. What I liked about it, though, was a telegram. And the person's like, you have a telegram. She's like, read it to me. If I was the person, <laughs> the operator, I'd be like, oh, seriously, I got to read this thing to you now? I also like that, too. It's like, read it to me. This is an audio medium. <laughs> um, that sort of ties up a thing. JJ, a bad politician, does not become president. Eddie falls in love with his, with his brother's wife, and they run away together. And yep. three carnies just get like, they, someone wasted two days of their lives. And that's it. And that's Super that's Train. It. Well, guys, do you have any, any final notes? Anything we didn't cover in these two episodes before we get to ratings? I mean, I not specifically about like the two episodes per se. Anything. Talk about anything you want. Like, just like the idea of Super Train as a whole just boggles the mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. You don't think the government could pay a private contractor to build a super train in 22 months that travels the entire country? No, I mean, absolutely, they could do that. And that's the only way to do it, right? Is like, if you're going to build a super train, you actually need to lay all new track specifically for that super train because you can't use the regular train tracks. Um, Too big. No, you need super tracks. Well, yes, you need super tracks. But if you're, if you're the only train that has a, a nuclear engine on board, which is amazing... Because uh, that's how it's powered, right? Is a nuclear-powered mm-hmm. steam train. Yes, it's a steam train that just uses nuclear energy to make steam. Which is what nuclear power does. That's how that's Absolutely. how nuclear power works. You you boil water, turn a turbine, away you go. Uh, you guys know this. You're near Pickering. <laughs> you don't boil the water. You nuclear the water, and steam comes out. Right. Yes. <laughs> you just nuke the water. It's like a big old microwave. <laughs> that's how nuclear power plants work. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a nu- it's a nuclear power plant on a train, which is just amazing. I love I love that idea. But you need to lay all new track for it because this train is going roughly twice as fast to travel across the country 
as like mm-hmm. the current Amtrak that you could take. So like you don't want to get stuck behind that slow train and then and then your your high speed train is now a, a regular speed train. So you have to have dedicated track, which I just imagine building dedicated track through downtown New York. Uh <laughs> Easy. No problem. I think it checks out. 22 months. It took no time at all. But then the the places where they choose to stop this train are Needles, strange. California. Needles, which, like, I guess is, like, it's a culturally known city, I suppose. I'd never heard of it before this episode. Pro- probably at the time, though, right? Like, uh, it, was, it was in, I think, Grapes of Wrath uh, mentioned it, and it was on... Uh, Route 66, it was a, a popular stop in, in California because it was, like, the first city in California. So, like, it was I a known thought they thing. made it up. <laughs> it was, like, a touch point. But for us now, it's, like, there's, like, 4,000 people that live there, and it's a, a complete nothing. They got that super train station. They don't know what to do with it. And you're like, but the, yeah. <laughs> Why is super train stopping in this podunk Town. I feel I feel like I was shocked because here's the thing. In the first episode, we knew it went from New York to California, and there were some like milk stops along the way. In this episode, they announced it goes from it goes from New York to Chicago to California, which I'm just like, that's a real detour on that trip to California. Is it? <laughs> I mean, you got it. I, I, I don't feel it. I always assumed it was like a straight line. In my mind, I'm like, you built these super train tracks. It's like a straight line to L.A. But I'm just like, oh, so now you're going to go north a bit and you're going to cut down back down to California. I'm just because it what is it? It gets to California in three days. Thirty six hours. Thirty six hours. I just to me now, I'm just like, how fast is super train traveling? Well, it's this really is the fast. thing. It is fast. But at like high speed train speeds, you could make that trip really quickly. Right. It's it's only twenty five twenty five hundred miles. Uh, and, and they're, they're able to go like 190 miles an hour. But you're also able to go stand on the outside of the train and not get blown off. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very sheltered balcony <laughs> or something. I don't know. I don't, the aerodynamics of it, it works. <laughs> Unrelated. Do you think, uh, this show, cause we've now watched three episodes taking out the first episode, cause it was a bit of an outlier. Do you think these are just going to be how much more of a convoluted crime plot can we have each episode? Because both of these have plots that, while kind of fun, don't really hold up to too much uh, inspection, you know? Could be anything, not just a train. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Even even in the last episode with the president, the president's wife arrives mid-train ride, and I was just like, yeah. when did she get on the train? <laughs> At Evansville. Apparently. But yeah, it, it, it's trouble. Here's the thing. I only want one thing from this show now. I want an episode where super trains melting down and they're worried they're going to nuke America. Yes. <laughs> That's not going to happen. That's, That's not going to happen. That's the only episode that I want to see of Super Train. And you're right. It's never going to happen. No. Next episode is Mary Tyler Moore shows up and she needs to kill her kids. So she hires uh, an astronaut who comes down to pretend to be uh, an alien. That's the next episode, you know? It is the one thing I'm regretting about this show. Is it's not it's not very science fiction-y. No. No, there's almost zero elements other than this train is going really fast and it's not consequential to the plot at all. It just that you know there's a disco room. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you're basically on a super train is the most science fictional part of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but back to the back to the train. 
All right, let's go back <laughs> to the tray. I, I tried getting us off that, but I know, I know, and I, I'm not, I'm not giving it up. I'm Marshall's not done <laughs> yet. Dog with a bone here. If they just had a straight rail from New York to Los Angeles, and they could just cut through whatever was there, it's only like 2,500 miles. If they go like 190, that's only 13 hours. All right, so they have time to go everywhere. They've got they want. tons of time to kill, so they can they can take a a nice little stop up at Chicago, and then apparently Evansville, which I think is actually like in Wisconsin, so it's even further north. I mean, next episode, reason. I think they're going to stop in New Orleans for a hot second. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> right. that is the point. Maybe the point is that it's sort of like pinballing all over the United States before you get to your destination. Do you know what Until I mean? It's you like, get to LA. hey, you're you're going to get to LA, but we're going to hit like fourteen. 20 cities along the way but you're not even going to notice the difference because it's, it's so fast train. it's well yeah because train. right now if you take the train it's 79 hours if you if you took a train present day from new york to los angeles you're on there for over three full days right so this is cut train travel by half yeah and you can still make all of these wild stops uh, in wherever you possibly need to in flyover Midwest. i don't know what you guys are complaining about this is a super train I love it. I love it. It's great. It's also like the last possible this this era of having a super train like when they when they made the show, it's the last possible era that you could have had a super train that's like the height of luxury, but everyday people could afford it. Mm. Now the best we can hope for is some sort of a hyperloop. Well, yeah, or like, you know, you get like a a sleeper where if you're lucky, your train car your your seat on the train lays down. Uh, <laughs> let alone having this entire suite of a compartment and a club car and a pool. A pool. This because uh, very shortly inflation uh, or stagflation is going to destroy any of the earnings, and and right around now is when like union membership starts to drop drastically and earnings fall flat while productivity goes wild. So like the wealthy people, you know, like uh, what's what's the owner's name? Not Root Float uh, or. Isn't it Winfield Root? I thought Root was the uh, conductor. Oh, maybe it's conductor. It's Winfield's his first name. I know that. Flood. Winfield Flood. Flood. Marshall, you're starting to sound like JJ. Uh, JJ, whatever his face here. This uh, <laughs> Phillips with your with the, JJ Phillips with these communist ideas that he's <laughs> given in these last couple speeches. It's, Have you been replaced? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Do you listen to our show? <laughs> no, no. That's this why, the that's least why communist I like, I've ever been. This was, this was, I was glad you were on for this episode because I was just like, oh, uh, Marcel's going to have some thoughts on uh, government subsidies and this super train run by a wealthy, a, a Rockefeller wealthy man. I, I, I did, I loved it. Uh, just like this idea. It's how TV shows do politics where they're like, oh, everybody sucks. Yeah, there's no good politicians anymore ever since Eisenhower or something. <laughs> It's like what, Jordan? You're always saying that. Yeah, I like Ike. <laughs> I like Ike. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, like a train like that absolutely should have government subsidies, and people should be able to ride it. You know, probably it doesn't need a pool, uh, but but hey, why not? So sorry, you don't want to see Dick Van Dyke in his bathing suit, you monster? <laughs> no, I do want to see more Dick Van Dyke in a bathing suit. <laughs> also, that's something that Super Train does a lot of is like scantily clad people just in yeah. general on the show. We see a lot of like bum shots of ladies in like tight shorts. And I'm like, who are you? Moira what staff was are, are you hiring say? for this? I mean, they do need uh, they, they do need people for that disco scene every episode mm-hmm. when we have a disco. 
And and the disco music that plays whenever you see Super Train just running is Chef's Kiss. You know, I we have I don't know if we've said it. I love the music in this show. So good. It's great. Very appropriate. <laughs> oh my god. Uh also the DJ in the club room. No, we're not going to rate it yet, are we? <laughs> the DJ in the club room? That man is incredibly skilled or, or or lady, I don't know who the DJ is. That DJ is incredibly skilled though. Like can put on a slow song at the exact right time. Oh yeah. Every time. <laughs> Well, they're just watching the crowd. They're like, oh, Dick Van Dyke's going in for their move. Slow song, slow song. Make it happen, right? Like, <laughs> They're riding those vibes. They got it. Uh, I want to be on the super train. I want to ride it. This is now, this is your dream now. It's riding this That's super right. train. I, do you think I could get government subsidies to start a nuclear train? <laughs> I, hey, you might as well try. Vancouver to Halifax in 36 hours. Not with J.J. Phillips in office. <laughs> All right, guys. Let's let's rate this episode. These episodes of Super Train. So, you guys, the first episode we watched was "And a Cup of Kindness Too." Mm-hmm. Very weird title for this episode. <laughs> but Marshall, out of like a ten stars, what what? Where is this falling for you? Oh God, uh, I should have put more thought into this part of it. Um, <laughs> you thought so much about the Super Train itself, but you didn't think yeah, about the episode. Less right? subsidies, more ratings. <laughs> uh, you know, I. I really just enjoyed that it was Dick Van Dyke. Uh, that that tickled me a lot. Uh, so I'd probably go like six and a half. Mm. Can I go next, Luke? No, of course. Feel free. I'm also, you know, I was going to give it a seven out of ten because I was all in, but I'm also going to go down slightly to a six and a half. If just because I don't think they gave the character of Jack, Larry Linville's character, I just didn't think they gave him enough to do, and I think that was... Um, a bit of a misstep, so I I have to take off half a point. So also six and a half out of ten. Well, I mean, I feel similar. I, I was editing last week's episode, and we had made a we made a comment that like the show could get better if just like the guest star is George C. Scott, and we're just watching George C. Scott do something insane. Mm-hmm. And we basically got that. We got Dick Van Dyke playing a complete Travis Bickle, uh, and I was just like. This is amazing. I'm really loving this from him. The rest of it, like none of it adds up. Yeah. None of it makes any sense. It's very silly at times, but it's fun. Victor and Dex having a great time. Uh, I, I'm going to give it a seven. Nice. Which leads us to hail to the chief. Marshall, what are, what are your thoughts? Uh, it's, I mean, it was not It was not a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't as good. I agree. Uh, yeah, probably... Like it's still Super Train, and you you still get the disco, you still get the dancing. Uh, I I think like a five probably. The plot just was not good though. Fair enough. Uh, I would say it would it would have been getting a five and a half, but because they didn't make the little people do anything that's uh was too horrific, I'm gonna give them an extra point. So uh, what was I at? Five and a half. I'll give it a six. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. This episode is really revealing that, like, Super Train has, like, like some of these shows, only so many tricks up its sleeve. Like, you're going to go to the pool. You're going to go to the disco. You're going to, like, hit a few beats. Another murder plot's happening in one episode. And then the next episode, it's not a murder plot, but you've also got just, like, a kidnapping. They're They're all the same beats. But I will give them this. They each felt slightly fresh. Like, they they weren't complete re-threads of the previous episodes. And after the pilot, I just thought this was going to be total garbage i like the pilot was such a disaster that i was relieved to see uh hail to the chief being more entertaining than i thought it was going to be um but still yeah it's not a, it's not a great show it's uh, a lot of a lot of weirdness not a, not a great not a great show I, i'm gonna go i'm gonna follow jordan i'm gonna go six hmm. 
But but Luke, I think you make an interesting point. We're three episodes in, and I would agree that these felt like you know separate episodes. But I, how how many episodes did the show do? Ten or something like that? I don't know how long they can sustain this. I have a feeling in the next couple episodes we're gonna get like like the poor man's Dick Van Dyke of the seventies, whoever that was, doing a very similar episode. I just I that's the feeling I get. You know what I'm shocked by? I'm shocked that they saved the Dick Van Dyke episode to their second one. Like that should have been your pilot. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but I mean, the pilot did a. I I mean I don't know I watch a lot of these but it seemed to do a decent job of introducing every side character that you're never going to meet again. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Everyone got their chance to shine for the only time they'll ever get their like, chance to the shine. Like the hairdresser just so that you can see the shot of him like double blow dryer yeah. pointing at somebody. <laughs> they, they, well, they needed that for the opening credits. Yeah. And and they put it in the opening credits for some reason cuz people don't actually go get their hair did. The weightlifters in the opening credits. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you, and I, I went and looked at the I, the credits later so I could confirm this, but I didn't realize, I didn't recognize Rose from the pilot who like has to take care of the children in the second episode, and I didn't really re- re- see her in the third episode. Is she even in the opening credits? I'm not sure. We'll have to see in episode four. I can't remember. I, I literally thought they introduced a new train character. Just for that episode, no. but then I, I in the in the credits I saw she's in every episode, but I'm like, but where? I'm sure she's in the credits. The the issue is that they've introduced these the characters in the pilot and they said, No, you know all you need to know. They'll be in the background because you're in it for Loretta Swit or whoever it is gonna be, right? Oh, Super Train. Um well, I mean, I think that's it. I think we've talked enough about Super Train for the for this week. That's 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 probably all right. Um Marshall, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, of course, your podcast, Androids and Assets, I think is uh, something people who listen to this podcast will probably enjoy because you get into science fiction, though perhaps a little more on the uh, in-depth in-depth discussions of the, the universe and kind of how they fit. Do you want to you pitch that podcast? Yeah, I mean, I think you've done a pretty good job of it there. Uh, we, we talk about science fiction and, and fantasy, so uh, speculative fiction is, is what we call it. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people call it that. We talk about speculative fiction. <laughs> no, you coined that's the term. Very, that's very Margaret, Margaret Atwood of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, and so if you enjoyed me talking about uh, the the economics of a train and uh, <laughs> yeah, you're 100 percent going to get that. Like that's that's what we do. We're like, would Super Train actually have been built, and how much of a government subsidy would it get, and what stops would it actually make? Uh, that's that's how we would have broke down Super Train every episode. We like, we don't care about the plot. Where did they stop? What city were they in? <laughs> but yes, you, you, so you you'll you'll read some science fiction. You'll watch some DS Nine. You'll uh, I think you've done it. You'll you'll watch some science fiction movies. You're all you like you like to dabble in a whole bunch of things on the on the program. Yeah, I mean, I think we're pretty media agnostic. Um, but whatever whatever sort of thing we're interested in at that time uh we do it's sort of like a spin-off show now um uh, emissaries of profits that uh, is uh deep space nine we're reviewing every episode in varying levels of detail uh and then the main show androids and assets where we talk about whatever else i know i did not realize it was it was a spin-off show interesting it's a show within a show. It's a show within a show. It has its own feed now, actually. If you want, if you only want Deep Space Nine content, you can you can get Emissaries of Profits as a thing. If you don't want Deep Space Nine content, you can get Androids and Assets as a thing. And if if you want the complete package, that's also available. You can listen to us every every week. Let me let me ask you. Once you once you split DS 9s feed off, uh, the other feed really dropped in listenership. Right? Uh, I I. 
I suspect so, but I have not actually checked the the stats to see if people swapped feeds or not. And that's not to say that the rest of the episode, this podcast isn't good. I just happen to know that, like, if you do a Star Trek podcast, uh, you're always going to have people coming to the table. Yeah, yeah, you definitely get listeners. Uh, We've had lots of people like, yeah, we listened to your Deep Space Nine episodes. Great, but what about the other ones? (laughs) What about the other ones? Your your other show? No, no, we're just here for Deep Space Nine. The whole thing is good, everybody. I was just like, I'm like, what a risky move to split them apart. What we've learned is people love Star Trek and Super Train. (laughs) <laughs> we're gonna get some big numbers for Super Trade. Oh my God! I mean, people are dying to watch Super Trade. Apparently. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for this, listener. If uh, you want to email us anything, you can get us at continuedrag at gmail dot com. Drop drop a line, say hello. We always love to hear from you. Uh, and on Instagram and Twitter, we will have clips from this uh, this week's episodes of Super Train. Uh, just Dick Van Dyke walking around with a cup of milk for the most part, mm-hmm. but that's about it. And uh, that about wraps it up. So, uh, listener, thank you for joining us. And, Jordan, I will see you next week. See you then. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.